All right, Nick, so it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN, and we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsrivercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creags over, over coffee. coffee. All right. So, Faye, today we're going to jump back in time a little bit. We've talked a lot about different genetic things on the podcast before, but I feel like one of those super common Creag and board questions are sort of things about common aneuploidies, generally speaking. So we're going to jump on that today. What are we specifically going to learn about? Sure. So today we're going to define aneuploidy and understand the genetic mechanisms that contribute to it. We're going to review the prenatal presentations of common autosomal aneuploidies. So those are your T21, T18, and T13s. And then finally, we're going to review the prenatal presentation of one sex chromosome aneuploidy, uh, which is monosomy X. Additional episodes that might be helpful for today for you guys to go back and check out. We did do um, some episodes that include soft markers for aneuploidy, as well as updates in prenatal genetic screening and prenatal genetic screening and testing. And we'll be putting the links um, for those uh, in our episode description today. All right, so let's get right into it, Nick. Um, Start us off, what exactly is an aneuploidy? Yeah, so Faye, like I mentioned before, we have talked about aneuploidy, quote unquote, multiple times in our other genetics episodes like you detailed there. Um, But aneuploidies really comprise some really classic creogs and boards questions. So we felt today we wanted to really dedicate an episode to aneuploidy itself. Um, Aneuploidy just to define it, is the occurrence of one or more extra or missing chromosomes, which ultimately leads to an unbalanced complement. So again, you're missing one or you have an extra one, and either of those counts as aneuploidy. Screening for aneuploidy we've talked about on the show before, but classically occurs with either serum screening or with cell-free fetal DNA. Diagnostic testing for aneuploidy is then done with chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis. We've talked before on the screening episode, our updates in prenatal screening episodes specifically, talking about fluorescent in situ hybridization, karyotypes, and microarray. Remember that karyotypes are the confirmatory testing for common aneuploidies. Um, and then there are some other 
kind of forms of aneuploidy we won't talk about too much today, such as triploidy and balance translocations, um, but karyotypes will get those for you. And then microarray can find most of the major aneuploidies as well, um, but it can't find triploidy and it can't find balance translocations. But again, we're not going to spend our time focusing on that. We're really going to dive into the aneuploidies today. So Faye, um, I think one of the things that does come up from time to time on the boards is really the mechanism of how aneuploidy occurs. Like, how does this occur when it seems like we divide out and get 46 chromosomes so frequently well? All right. So folks, I mean, I know that we probably don't love it, but we are going to have to talk about meiosis for this portion of the podcast. So just as a reminder, think back to medical school. Meiosis is the process of cell division that produces gametes, so eggs and sperm. And the goal is to create daughter cells with a haploid chromosome number in humans. So uh, that's going to be 23. The two gametes generally fuse to create a diploid zygote with 46 chromosomes. And if there's an issue in the cell division process for a gamete, then they may come into this fusion with an extra or missing chromosome. And that's how you can get 47 or 45 chromosomes. And remember in cell division, we have multiple phases. There's prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. And we'll break it down simply into the stages you need to remember to get those bonus points. So let's first divide meiosis into those two phases. So there is meiosis one and meiosis two. Um, and in meiosis one, I think of this almost a little bit like mitosis itself, where there, um, the starting cell is diploid, but after replication, it ends up with four N chromatids. So it's they're held in these two N chromosome pairs or sister chromatids. So in prophase one, each pair of the chromosomes line up, they match with a homologous partner, and then this allows for the phenomenon of crossing over where, homo where homologous portions of the chromosomes can rearrange and exchange portions of their DNA. And this is where things can get a little dicey for particular types of uncommon aneuploidies known as translocation. And that's rather than recombining with a portion of the homologous chromosome, it attaches to a different chromosome. Um, and these translocations can be, one, balanced, where the genetic information is not gained or lost, but just rearranged differently. So for example, a piece of chromosome 21 joins onto chromosome 14, and then a piece of chromosome 14 joins onto the break at 21. And the cell at this point is still technically diploid, but there can be problems with this, of course, later on down the line. And then there can also be unbalanced translocation, where the genetic information is split unequally. So in the same example, for a piece of chromosome 21 joins onto 14, but then the piece from 14 is lost. The particular type of translocation that I think we've heard a lot about is called a Robertsonian translocation, which is where the full long arms of two acrocentric chromosomes are joined together. And the acrocentric chromosomes that are where the short arms are extremely short. So this is 13, 14, 15, 21, and 22 in humans. And it is more likely for a translocation to occur in these locations. And one of the most discussed is that 14, 21 translocation, which is responsible for some cases of Down syndrome. And these translocations typically result in familial cases of aneuploidy. So when a parent can have a balanced carrier of an abnormal chromosomes, the issue doesn't arise for aneuploidy until they start trying to have children. And then the chromosome complement ends up balanced in the offspring. And then in the female reproductive cycle, the eggs will arrest in the cell cycle at prophase one and only complete the remainder of meiosis prior to the egg's ovulation. So an egg can be arrested for 30 to 40 years. And ultimately, this with this extended pause, meiosis one in oocytes is where the majority of non-disjunction events occur. 
And then just to complete meiosis one, we have metaphase one, which is the homologous pairs line up across the metaphase plate like a cell equator to prepare for division. In anaphase one, the, homolog- the homologs are separated to the opposite ends of the cell or not if they can't be separated, and this is called non-destruction. And then telophase one is where the new cells are haploid in chromosome pairs. All right. Okay. So I think that moves us on with meiosis one. Meiosis two is really when those sister chromatids are split into haploid pairs. And then in metaphase two, the sister chromatids line up again. In anaphase two, the sister chromatids are separated to the opposite ends of the cell and is another point where non-destruction can occur. And then in telophase two, the new cells are haploid with 23 single chromosomes, so no longer in pairs. So that's really just a very long way to kind of talk about meiosis one and meiosis two. Um, so now that we're done with that medical school review, Nick, let's finally get into some of the more interesting portions of our talk, which is let's talk about trisomy 21 down syndrome. Talk to me about what this is and how it's detected and what can happen. Yeah. So as you've gone through, Faye, now that we've gotten that cell biology review, we know trisomy 21 or down syndrome is a syndrome that results from an extra copy of chromosome 21. Um, so 47 with chromosomes with an extra copy of 21. This is the most common autosomal aneuploidy. This affects about 1 in 700 births in the United States. And most of them are the result of a non-disjunction event. So again, Typically in that meiosis one, one of those chromosome 21 copies doesn't quite divide the whole way. And that's 95% of cases of Down syndrome. Now, the Robertsonian translocation that Faye mentioned, particularly that kind of 1421 recombination, if you will, um, we'll have a picture on the website kind of illustrating that for you. That is the second most common reason for Down syndrome to occur, and it's about 5% of occurrences overall. Finally, there is a mosaic form of trisomy 21, which is pretty infrequent, representing maybe only 1% to 2% of cases maximum that I was able to find in background for this episode. And this is where some cell lines have aneuploidy and others do not. So again, mosaicism, some cell lines have the aneuploidy and others do not. This occurs usually in early mitosis of the zygote, where an embryo during cell division actually recognizes the extra chromosome, and that cell tries to like kick out that extra copy, essentially, during a process called aneuploidy rescue. Now, aneuploidy rescue has its own issues. Um, we won't spend too much time on that today, though, um, but just know that that's one thing that can happen and can contribute to pictures like mosaicism. Now, we've talked about prenatal testing before for trisomy 21, but let's just review some of the characteristics specifically. Again, many of us now are just ordering cell-free DNA. This is kind of very, very common practice. And cell-free DNA really was built around the idea of detecting Down syndrome. It's got an excellent test performance with over 99% sensitivity and specificity for trisomy 21. However, it's really important to know because of essentially the low prevalence of Down syndrome, again, 1 in 700 live births, false positives still occur pretty frequently on cell-free DNA, particularly in low prevalence populations. So just as an example, if you took a person age 25 and they had a positive trisomy 21 screen on cell-free, the false positive risk is around 50%, so definitely not insignificant. This definitely gets better as patients 
approach that advanced maternal age or age 35, um, where the kind of incidence of Down syndrome in a pregnancy is much higher there. Now, if you're in an environment that doesn't cover cell-free DNA universally, you may still be using serum screening. And this is also one of those classic like step questions or boards questions in terms of what the pattern of serum screening looks like for Down syndrome. If we break it down to the four most common serum analytes that you'll see, you'll have low maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein, or AFP, and low estriol. So again, low MSAFP and low estriol, while you'll have high HCG and high inhibin A. So again, low AFP, low estriol, high HCG, high inhibin A. I don't know if I've got a really good mechanism to be able to remember that honestly, um, but just one to commit to memory to get that extra point or two on CREOGS of the boards. Now, the other thing that can come up are sort of concerns, say a patient who declined serum screening, declined cell-free DNA, they come in for their ultrasound and you find something there that might signal Down syndrome. What should you be looking for? In the first trimester, far and away, the most common signs are something like an increased nuchal translucency that affects about 64 to 70% of fetuses with Down syndrome, and then also absence or a hypoplastic nasal bone. And you'll find these first trimester ultrasounds with aneuploidy. This is a common theme to find these things. In the second trimester, there's a ton of different soft markers that have significance for trisomy 21. And again, we went over this in our previous podcast specifically on soft markers, but pyelectasis, echogenic bowel, echogenic cardiac foci, and short femurs are all considered soft markers for T21. The most significant soft marker though for trisomy 21 is the thickened nuchal fold. So it's kind of like a second trimester NT, if you will. Um, and the likelihood ratio for a thickened nuchal fold is around 11 to 18 specifically for trisomy 21. Now I think more commonly for the boards, there are these pathognomonic findings that come up with Down syndrome. And probably the most common one is something called the double bubble sign. This double bubble sign will be two um, echolucent or dark bubbles in the middle of the abdomen that you'll see right next to each other. And that's a finding that's significant for a condition called duodenal atresia. Again, this is almost pathognomonic for Down syndrome. We'll have an image of the ultrasounds to review on our website. You should definitely review it so that way you're ready for it on your exams. Cardiac anomalies are present in about 50% of babies with Down syndrome, and particularly significant and common are atrioventricular septal defects. Um, so those AV canal defects you might remember from your first aid book or something once upon a time. Again, we'll post an image to the website of sort of what that looks like because that's also a pretty common ultrasound picture to get in the test environment. Okay, Faye, so that covers Down syndrome and there's a lot to know there, um, but let's kind of move on to other common autosomal aneuploidies. Maybe trisomy 18 next. Yeah, so trisomy 18 is also known as Edwards syndrome, and as the name suggests, trisomy 18, it results from an additional chromosome 18. It's pretty infrequent. It, it occurs in about 1 in 2 to 6,000 live births in the United States, and it occurs usually via non-disjunction. So over 95% of the cases are due to non-disjunction, as we talked about in that meiosis situation that we discussed before. Mosaicism also causes around 4 to 5% 
percent of cases and then very rarely but this has been reported translocations can also lead to trisomy 18. In terms of prenatal testing, so cell-free DNA is rather good. It has a 96% sensitivity and over 99% specificity. But just like how Nick talked about before, in a population where the prevalence of uh, trisomy 18 is quite low, the positive predictive value, so again, that you know, if you get a positive result, what is the actuality that the fetus actually has trisomy 18, can still be quite low. And so that positive predictive value is only 40% in a woman at age 35. In terms of serum screening, all analytes will decrease, though in some cases the inhibin A can be normal. So again, that's when you're looking at your MSAFP, the estriol, the HCG, and the inhibin A. And then on ultrasound, in the first trimester, we'll usually see an increased nuchal translucency and potentially an absent or hypoplastic nasal bone. And in the second trimester, you may see multiple characteristics. Um, these include things like choroid plexus cysts, which are the most common so soft marker, though they are nonspecific. You can also see something called a strawberry skull, where, which we'll put an image um, on our website for so you can look at that. So basically what that is, is a flattened occiput, so the back of the head, and then pointed frontal bones of the head. So it kind of looks a little bit like a strawberry. And then other things that you've probably heard about with trisomy 18 are things like you can see clenched hands with overlapping fingers. You can see the rocker bottom feet, cardiac anomalies, esophageal atresia, diaphragmatic hernias, and then also growth restriction. Um, and the way that I think I've been taught to remember this is that you know, you're know you a rocker at, at age 18, so you have rocker bottom feet, and your fingers are kind of overlapped in that like rock sign. <laughs> Um, oh, that's pretty good. All right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the way that I remember that is, is the hand signal and the rocker bottom feet. Um, all right. So enough of that. <laughs> Let's move on to trisomy 13. Um, talk to me a little bit about this, Nick. Yeah. So T13 is, as the name implies, a syndrome that results from an additional copy of chromosome 13. And this is even rarer than trisomy 18. It's about 1 to 10 and 16,000, or 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 16,000 live births in the United States. The most common way that this occurs, again, is a non-disjunction event. Um, but chromosome 13 is one of those acrocentric chromosomes like Faye mentioned earlier. So a Robertsonian translocation can occur and familial forms of trisomy 13 have been reported. Um, mosaicism is also possible with trisomy 13 as well. Now, in terms of the prenatal testing characteristics, cell-free DNA, it's a very similar story to trisomy 18. The sensitivity for T13 is around 91%, specificity still remains over 99%, but given that really low prevalence, a positive predictive value is still kind of low. So if you have a positive result in a person at age 35, the positive predictive value is only around 20%. Um, so definitely diagnostic testing is still warranted with a positive screening test. With serum screening in trisomy 13, no, there really isn't a well-described pattern of the serum screening analytes with T13. But AFP may be elevated in some of these fetuses, particularly because in trisomy 13, there is a tendency for more CNS or other anomalies that can raise AFP as well. Um, so more on that here as we talk kind of on ultrasound. 
Again, first trimester, similar story. You kind of have that elevated NT. You have an absent or hypoplastic nasal bone. And then really, you know, in the first trimester, you can see, but particularly in the second trimester, you're going to see a lot of midline and central nervous system issues in fetuses affected by trisomy 13. So again, think midline, particularly for T13. Holoprosencephaly is one of the more common features, and that's really the failure to, of the brain to divide into its cerebral hemispheres. So rather than being a left brain and right brain, it's really just sort of one mass that didn't divide out. On ultrasound, you fail to see the sort of midline structure there called the Falk cerebri. And again, we'll have an image on the website. There tend to be a lot of unique facial anomalies with trisomy 13. So cleft lip and cleft palate are more common. There can be something called a proboscis, um, which is a sort of long nose, like a proboscis that you might think of on a insect or another type of animal that has a long nose. Um, microphthalmia and anophthalmia, um, either small eyes or absence of eyes, or again, thinking about the midline, sort of a cyclops eye, where it's just a single eye that's in the midline, also has been seen with trisomy 13. Cardiac anomalies are really common in up to 80% of these babies. Um, Phallocele is another very common feature of trisomy 13. And then you may see enlarged echogenic kidneys, or again, thinking about those midline issues, a horseshoe kidney may be present as well. Um, so again, the take-home message on T13 really are just midline issues um, and pretty uncommon overall, meaning that you're positive predictive value is going to be pretty low, even on something like cell-free DNA. All right, Faye, let's close out our discussion on aneuploidy today with another fairly common one um, in monosomy X. Sure. So monosomy X, also known as Turner syndrome, is a syndrome that results from a missing sex chromosome. So essentially, instead of an additional chromosome, what like we were talking about before, you have only 45 chromosomes and it's designated 45XO. 80% of the time, this is actually paternally derived, so one of the few circumstances um, where this is the case. Its frequency is also quite low. It's about 1 in two to 5,000 live births. And again, it also occurs via non-disjunction, which is the most common way uh, that it can occur. On the paternal side, given the mismatch of X and Y, the Y chromosome can be subject to uh, getting lost in meiosis. Mosaicism can also occur with Turner syndrome in about 50% of individuals. So cell lines are able to be mixed as 45XO or four, and 46XX or 45XO, 46XY most commonly. And if the Y chromosome is detected, gonadectomy is advised to reduce the risk of gonadoblastoma in later life. In terms of prenatal testing characteristics, cell-free DNA is again quite good. Overall, the sensitivity is about 90% and the specificity is 99%. Um, but again, because of the limited prevalence, we know that the positive predicted value is going to be limited by that prevalence overall. Cell-free DNA also has difficulty with mosaicism overall and delineating this specifically. So again, if your cell-free DNA comes back positive, um, as we've probably you know alluded to with the rest of these um, findings, is that we really should encourage our patients to get definitive testing. 
On ultrasound, the most commonly tested finding that uh, you're going to be tested on is a cystic hygroma. So this can be present in the first and or the second trimester, um, which is going to appear as increased edema around the fetal neck. And we'll again post pictures so that you can see what this looks like. And then it can also present as more generalized edema. So the way that we sometimes describe it is that it looks like the baby is wearing a spacesuit. Um, Other things that you can find on ultrasound are things like horseshoe kidney, cardiac abnormalities, and these can also be seen um, later on, even in the first or second trimester. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. We've talked about, you know, aneuploidy. We've talked about the presentations of all of these different types of aneuploidy. So let's go ahead and summarize. Absolutely. So we started off mentioning that aneuploidy is the occurrence of one or more extra or missing chromosomes that ultimately leads to an unbalanced complement. We can screen for aneuploidy with either serum screening or cell-free DNA, and then confirm it with diagnostic testing, typically with chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis. We then talked about how aneuploidy occurs, and we discussed the process of meiosis, where basically the goal is to create daughter cells with a haploid chromosome number, so in humans that's 23. We then broke down specifically meiosis into meiosis 1 and meiosis 2, where in meiosis 1, in prophase 1, this is specifically where the majority of non-disjunction events can occur because the female egg cells often will arrest at prophase 1 until there's ovulation. To complete meiosis 1, there's metaphase, anaphase, and telophase, and then we kind of go through the same thing all over again in meiosis 2 so that the new cells at the very end are haploid with hopefully 23 single chromosomes. We then moved on to talk about the different types of aneuploidy. We first spoke about trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, which occurs primarily via non-disjunction events, but rarely can also occur as the result of something called a Robertsonian translocation. Remember those acrocentric chromosomes, 13, 14, 15, 21, and 22. And in the case of Down syndrome, typically there's a translocation between chromosomes 14 and 21 for it to occur. Again, you can test for it via cell-free DNA with excellent test characteristics, as well as serum screening, with the pattern there being a low AFP, low estriol, high HCG, and high inhibin. On ultrasounds, particularly in the second trimester, there are various soft markers that can be present, but the most significant is a thickened nuchal fold. And the pathognomonic findings to remember are the double bubble sign for duodenal atresia and cardiac anomalies, particularly atrioventricular septal defects. We then next talked about trisomy 18 or Edwards syndrome, which again, mostly occurs via non-disjunction over 95% of the cases. There are also cases where mosaicism can occur and translocation, but that is very, very rare. Prenatal testing characteristics, we usually will use cell-free DNA, which is very good in terms of sensitivity and specificity, but again, has low positive predictive value given the overall low prevalence in the general population. Serum screening will show all analytes as decreased. And then on ultrasound, usually we'll see an elevated nuchal translucency or an absent or hypoplastic nasal bone in the first trimester. And then multiple characteristic signs, including those cord plexus cysts, strawberry skull, clenched hands with overlapping fingers, rocker bottom feet, cardiac anomalies, and esophageal atresia, diaphragmatic hernias, and growth restriction. Remember, you're rocking out at age 18, and so that's how you remember those rocker bottom feet and the clenched hands with the overlapping fingers. Finally, we talked about trisomy 13, or Patau syndrome, 
Again, this is mostly due to a non-disjunction event, but chromosome 13, also being one of those acrocentric chromosomes, is susceptible as well to the Robertsonian translocation phenomenon. In terms of prenatal testing, cell-free DNA shares a similar story to T18, where even though the sensitivity is over 90%, given the low prevalence, positive predictive values will still be low. There's no well-defined pattern for serum screening, but elevated AFP may be present, particularly if there are CNS or other anomalies that can raise AFP. Finally, on ultrasounds, you want to remember midline defects, so holoprosencephaly, or the failure of the brain to divide into its two hemispheres, cleft lip and palate, proboscis, cyclops eye, or microphthalmia and anophthalmia, cardiac anomalies, omphalocele, and enlarged echogenic kidneys or a horseshoe kidney. And last of all, we talked about monosomy X or Turner syndrome, where there's a missing sex chromosome, so 45XO, and 80% of the time this is paternally derived. Again, it is pretty infrequent, most likely caused from non-disjunction from the paternal side where that Y chromosome can be lost, but mosaicism can also occur in about 50% of individuals. Prenatal testing, again, with cell-free DNA is pretty good. However, that that positive predicted value is still going to be limited by prevalence. On ultrasound, the most commonly tested finding is going to be that cystic hygroma that you can see in the first or second trimester. But remember that you can also see things like horseshoe kidney, cardiac anomalies, and that can also be present. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsRiverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsRiverCoffee. And if you love the show and want to contribute, go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsRiverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rash Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsRiverCoffee.com. And if you have a suggestion for us, a correction, or just want to say hi, go ahead and email us at careergsrivercoffee at gmail.com.